we are on an unsustainable path. Carbon emissions are continuing to rise. We don't just need carbon emissions to stop uh, rising, we need carbon emissions to fall to zero. The current path we're on is, is unsustainable. Something which can't go on forever will stop. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. I think it's fair to say that some environmental advocates, at least in the United States, consider the oil and gas industry to be the moral equivalent of tobacco companies simply out to maximize profits without any consideration given to the broader social implication of the use of their products. Furthermore, many such critics would paint the industry with a broad brush, not considering ways in which the companies may differ from one another. My guest today, Spencer Dale, and, and more to the point, his employer, may provide a counterexample. Spencer is Group Chief Economist of BP, the multinational oil and gas company based in London, where he leads BP's global economics team. Prior to joining BP in 2014, he was Chief Economist of the Bank of England. Spencer, welcome to Environmental Insights. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Rob. So I'm very interested to hear about your impressions of the response of the oil and gas industry to the global pandemic as well as the threat of climate change. But before we talk about that, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. And I mean to go way back. So where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up, I sort of moved around. My father's job meant we moved around, but so I had no sort of fixed sort of place in London, but, but largely in Southern England, different parts of Southern England. And that mean primary school and what we call high school was also in that area? Yes, and, and, but I was a new kid in school every two or three years. Every two or three years we moved somewhere else, so I was always the new boy in the class. That must have been a particular challenge. And then what about university? Um, so I did my um, first degree in the University, of, uh, university College Cardiff, which is in Wales. And then I did my master's degree at Warwick uh, University. And that master's degree was in economics, is that right? Yes, it was, yes. So, and then your first job out of school. I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, should I stay and do a PhD or should I go and, and go back, go to the real world and start earning a living? And I couldn't quite make my mind up what to do. So I, I went to the Bank of England um, where I thought there was a good place where I could carry on doing research, but decide whether I would sort of move further into the commercial world or go back into academia. And I got the policymaking bug and stayed there for 25 years. So then, Spencer, what was your first job out of school? So my first job out of school was I, I moved to the Bank of England, the, the UK central bank, like the Federal Reserve Bank uh, in, in the US. And it was largely because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Did I want to move into a full scale uh, commercial career or did I want to carry on working in academia, perhaps stay and do a PhD? And I thought moving to the central bank was a good sort of halfway house why I made up my mind. Um, and I sort of didn't really make up my mind. I got the policy bug and, and in terms of helping to make uh, monetary policy and stayed there for the next 25 years. And over those 25 years, you rose up to become chief economist, in fact. 
I, I did, yes, which is a, and a wonderful job and, um, and, a, and a huge honor. So given that it was a wonderful job and a huge honor, how did you wind up moving to BP? Largely, if I'm honest, Rob, just because life seems too short to work for the same institution for your entire career, you always think um, what, what, what may, you know, different environments, different challenges. But if you've been working on in, in central banking, I was the chief economist all the way through the financial crisis, you want to go to a place, to, to, to a role where, where the issues you're dealing with feel as big and as significant as the ones you uh, have just been working on. And so it was hard to know what to do. And then this opportunity mm-hmm. at, at BP came along, which suddenly the, the challenges you're dealing with are, are huge. And, and in some sense, there's nothing bigger than, uh, than climate change as a sort of challenge to, to spend your life working and thinking about. Let's turn to those challenges. In fact, the situation in which we now find ourselves, the global coronavirus pandemic, what have been its impacts uh, and what will be its impacts on the oil and gas sector? So I think in the near term, the impact on the oil and gas sector is it's, it's, it's hit the oil and gas sector very significantly. The, the price of the products that we sell in terms of oil and, and natural gas have fallen very sharply. And so therefore, the impact that has on our, our finances and our revenues um, is very significant. And so there's a, a significant degree of um, belt tightening, um, as you know, BP, along with several other companies, have had to cut their dividends mm-hmm. um, to shareholders and so on. So I think in the near term, it's that that issue. I think further out, the, the, I think the big issue will be, will the impact of the pandemic um, act to uh, slow the pace of the energy transition to a low carbon world, or will it act to um, quicken it? And I think there are sort of powerful forces moving in, in both directions. I hope that the forces moving towards uh, helping to accelerate the energy transition will, 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 will win out, and I'm hopeful of that, but I don't think it's by, it's by no means certain. So if, if you mean by transition movement from fossil fuels to renewables, there are some other effects, I would think, but you'll know better than me, of the pandemic, even when it's over. And one that would seem to be fairly clear is business travel. I mean, I, I would assume that what companies around the world have learned is that it turns out that remote conferences and meetings, although they're not as good as in person, compared with the savings and opportunity cost, out-of-pocket costs, as well as opportunity cost of time, mean that they're, they're pretty darn good in a lot of circumstances. And so we might see lower demand for international business air travel, as well as those hotels in Singapore, Beijing, or New York, which are supported by business travelers. Does BP see it that way or, or, or no? Yes, we do. Um, and so we, I think we will see uh, less, particularly business travel. I think perhaps the biggest behavioural change which we think could persist out into the longer run is more generally people working from home. I think Mm -hmm. for many people, um, the idea of going back to the office, to work in an office from nine till five, five days a week, seems perverse when you've just spent the last seven or eight months um, working efficiently from home. So I think that that's an impact in terms of oil demand. I think the far greater impact on oil demand is not through these behavioural changes, however, it's mm-hmm. through the economic impact. So the even once, you know, the, 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 the wonderful thing over the last few months, we've heard the great news on, in terms of, of, of successful vaccines, and hopefully the pandemic will be brought under control over the next year or so. But the economic scars 
from the pandemic are li likely to last for far longer. And in particular, those economic stars are likely to fall disproportionately on emerging markets around the world, uh, India, Africa, and um, parts of, of Latin America. That it is those parts of the world which drive economic growth, and it's those parts of the world which will drive the demand for energy going forward. And so the impact of the pandemic on the economic uh, growth of those um, parts of the world, I think, will have a far greater bearing on the prospects for oil, gas demand and energy demand more generally going forward. So if, if not uh, economic recession on an ongoing basis, at least a considerably slower rate of economic growth in those emerging economies? Yes, and it's a slower economic growth, and it's and it's also that you never get back to the level or right. trend you would have been on. So even if it's not slower growth, you just don't get back to that same level. So a permanently lower levels of of, mm -hmm. of income and uh, stand, living standards, even even not permanently, those scars could could easily last for for ten to, for ten or twenty years. Now you said something interesting before that I want to follow up on. You mentioned that the pandemic could result when we come out of it, either in an accelerated uh, movement of the, what you characterize as the energy transition, I believe, or a delay in it. Can you explain that to me? Yes, and I think there are, there are powerful forces on both directions. In, if you like, the pessimistic story is the impact of the pandemic has meant many governments around the world are focused on their own domestic economies. They're, they're worried about the resilience of their economies in terms of their health systems, uh, personal protection equipment and so on. And they're worried about getting their economies going again. They have huge levels of unemployment. Many of their, their businesses are under pressure. And so governments increasingly focused on near-term domestic issues. And if governments are focused on near-term domestic issues, the ability, their bandwidth to start focusing on long-term global issues, of which climate change is one of them, it is, is, is correspondingly less. And an example of that is, I think, the attention that was devoted to climate change immediately after the, the great financial crisis of 2008-9 was less, because people were focusing on that trying to just deal with the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I think the pandemic has highlighted the fragility of um, the, the planet and, the, and the, the unsustainable way in which we are living in the planet today. Moreover, the scale of the, the government interventions we're seeing around the world are on a, are sort of give us a, an unprecedented opportunity to use those government interventions to kickstart um, the, 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 or to boost the economy in such a way as the growth we see going forward is greener and more sustainable um, and than it would otherwise have been. This, and this is sort of the, 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 um, the, the momentum underlying the Build Back Better campaign. And, mm. and I, think, I think the evidence so far is encouraging is that that Build back better pressure is is winning out against a sort of near-term um concerns of 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 governments in terms of their domestic economies in the in the near term so that's why i mean that's why i'm hopeful um that the pandemic when we look back in 10 or 15 years time mm -hmm. one silver lining from the pandemic may well be it was seen to sort of turbo boost that transition to a, a lower carbon energy system Although different companies, I suppose, may react in different ways. I mean, whereas the European uh, majors, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, and Total, have been quite ambitious in their climate-related plans, others, and I think of uh, ExxonMobil and Saudi Aramco, for example, have just recently set targets for the first time under the banner of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. 
Um, do you view the industry as being heterogeneous on climate change issues, or is it somewhat, somewhat homogeneous in that regard? I think different companies will have different strategies about what is best for their companies in terms of how to respond to the challenge of climate change. I think there's pretty much universal um, understanding across the industry of the challenge of, of climate change, the reality mm -hmm. of climate change and the need for our energy system to shift over time. And so I think that fundamental understanding, I think, is shared. But how the, the role that individual companies wish to play in, 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 in helping to generate and, and push that uh, energy transition and the strategies which different companies think is best for them will clearly vary. And that's right and proper, I think. But I think the general sense of understanding of it, I think, is, is shared uh, fairly widely. So focusing in on, on BP, the company was the first of the super majors, I believe, to expand its focus seriously into renewable sources of energy back in 2005. And earlier than that, in the late 1990s, perhaps, under then CEO John Brown, I recall it was announced that BP no longer stood for British Petroleum, but beyond petroleum. But I believe that many observers, at least the major green groups, would say that BP did not live up to that promise back from the Brown era. Um, do you think it did? So I think um, it's before my time in BP, but I think many people in BP look back at that beyond petroleum period with considerable pride in the sense that I think BP was one of the first major oil and gas companies to highlight the importance of climate change and then highlight the importance of, um, of a change in our company. And we certainly invested huge sums of money in trying to do that. Um, and, um, and some of that some of those investments were successful and, and stay today uh, and remain today, but, but but we lost a lot of that money. And and I think we learned there's some things we and there's some learnings from how we lost that. Some of it was we invested in things which I think in hindsight weren't perhaps necessarily the smartest things to invest in. So at one point, I think BP was the second or third uh, largest producer of solar, solar PV panels in the world. Um, we don't have a strong comparative advantage in mass manufacturing of solar PV cells relative to some, uh, some of the companies in, in China. And so we ended up um, not being successful there. However, we also invested in a number of other businesses which were sound businesses, which had sound business models, but they were, they were based on the assumption that by now there'll be a carbon price around the world of $40 or so. And if, they, if there's a carbon price of $40 a tonne on carbon emissions, these businesses made perfect sense. Um, unfortunately, as you know better than I do, Rob, it's very hard to find many parts of the world where there is a carbon price of $40 a tonne. So one of the lessons there, if you get out too far ahead of where governments and societies are, then, then it's quite a hard thing um, to do. And so that was another right. learning we took from that. Now, more recently, at least from what I saw on the internet, there was a, a week or maybe it was a two-week uh, series, a conference that BP put on. Um, and it seems that the company's slogan seems to have become reimagining energy. Can, can you explain to our listeners and to me for that matter, what does that mean? And also, why should those green groups who are skeptical, you know, they're always worrying about so-called uh, greenwashing from private sector companies. Why should those green groups take it seriously? But first, what does it actually mean? 
I think we're trying to fundamentally pivot the company. Um, and if you like, um, you think of companies like BP as an, uh, as an international oil company, an IOC, and we're trying to switch from being an international oil company to an integrated energy company. So uh-huh. from IOC to an IEC. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that? What, what reflects, what underpins that? One is a strong belief that the nature of energy demand is likely to shift very materially over the next 20, 30 years away from fossil fuels where they share the role that fossil fuels play in providing the world's energy declining quite materially over that period of time. And that's to be replaced by very significant growth in renewable energy led by wind and solar power. And so we we want to pivot away from those fossil uh, fossil fuels into a wider energy company not again become a manufacturer of you know solar panels and the like or is no. that now back in the mix no i think um never say never but i think yeah. the, the key focus here is not being a manufacturer of of kit but rather a developer of wind and solar power I see. um and the other part here is a, a belief that as we shift from from the sort of traditional fossil fuels to these uh, renewable energy, the nature of any mar- energy markets will, will also shift such that power will move away from upstream producers mm-hmm. to um, energy consumers. And so there'll be far more right. greater uh, c- customer choice, a far more diverse fuel mix. And in doing that, energy companies that provide um, energy services to customers, be that in the form of cities, large corporations, uh, households, allowing them to integrate across different types of energies, allowing them to pick, helping them to achieve, um, to reduce their carbon footprint over time. That's sort of where we see enormous growth area um, for our company. So moving away from an international oil company focused on upstream production towards an energy company providing, integrating across different energy energy types focused on providing solutions for energy customers and that's what we think is sort of if you like the the, the right type of business model to both support the energy transition this transition to a low carbon energy system but also as well as support it also to actually thrive in it as well now if i understand this correctly then that that would include uh equity stakes in energy generation facilities whether they are a solar panel farm or wind resources or possibly fossil fuel uh, generation capacities. Am I right there or is that out of the picture? Uh, no, that's in. And so uh, an example of, of that is is today we have, in terms of, of wind and solar power, we have a footprint of about two and a half um, gigawatts of, of capacity. And we've committed to developing 50 gigawatts of capacity by 2030. So this isn't, this isn't and this sort of relates a little bit to your point about why should people believe us. Um, and I think... Um, Partly, you can believe us by understanding the clear business case for why we're doing this. Um, mm-hmm. th- this is good for the planet, um, but it's also good for our shareholders. This make we think makes good, strong business sense, and so that's why, if one reason why you should believe us. But in some sense, I think the proof's in the pudding; uh, it's in the eating, and so um, we not only have made a commitment that we will be a, a net zero company by 2050. 
We've also put down some very clear milestones of what sort of company we'd like to be by 2030. And it's a fundamentally different company. Um, the amount of oil and gas we will produce by 2030 will fall by 40% is our, is our aim. And we have that aim I just mentioned in terms of um, going from two and a half gigawatts of wind and solar capacity to, to 50 gigawatts. So in some sense, um, you can track us uh, and those people that um, want to actually see us deliver on those aims. I can under totally understand that. And we've been Cliven's got some clear milestones that you can track us over time to see if we're actually um, living up to our word. And how, where do people go to track you on living up to your word? Is there a specific web address or the name of a website you can tell us about? Yeah, so um, all, all of this information will be on bp.com. Okay. Uh, and, and it's all there. And I think, I mean, I've sort of just taken your point a little bit, Rob, I think part of the challenge and the opportunity in terms of the, this as the world shifts to a lower carbon energy system is there's a, will be an, there's a far greater emphasis on transparency, on companies like BP being transparent about his business plans. And part of that transparency, I think, is for um, NGOs and others so they can monitor us and make sure that um, we do, we're, we're trained, staying true to our word. It's also for many investors and shareholders around the, the world who are just worried about their investments and they're, and they're right. worrying about whether is, is, is a, an oil and gas company mm -hmm. um, fit for that future and what are the risks associated with that and how, how is your business model adapting over time? And I think so the, there's a far greater emphasis, I think, on companies like us in terms of increasing our transparency so people can monitor mm -hmm. us in real time. And part of our strategy going forward is to have a significant increase in our levels of, of transparency and reporting. Now, as an economist, what I actually find the most compelling argument you made for people to believe that this is real is that not only is it the energy transition to green, but in fact, it is also in the long-term interest of the company. That's what convinces me as an economist that it's likely to be sustainable as opposed to a short-term discussion that fades away. And, and I think this is absolutely um, critical, uh, Rob, and, and you'll you're perhaps remember the uh, the economist, U.S. economist Herbert Stein, yes. um, and for those who don't uh, know, Herbert Stein was, I think, the the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the early, right. early 1970s. And Herbert Stein had um, had a very sort of famous saying, and Herbert Stein's saying was, "If something can't go on forever, it will stop." Right. <laughs> and, and this is known as Stein's law. And at one level, people may laugh and say, "Well, <laughs> really, you get a law out of that." This is very powerful. We are on an unsustainable path. Carbon emissions are continuing to rise. We don't just need carbon emissions to stop uh, rising. We need carbon emissions to fall to zero. The current path we're on is, is unsustainable. Something which can't go on forever will stop. And so when I'm thinking about a strategy for a company like BP, which is resilient to the future, I, I have Stein's law very firmly um, mm -hmm. ringing in my ears. And, and that... Is, is why, in some sense, you should believe us, because it makes good business sense for us to start to, to start this pivot of our company away from a traditional international oil company towards this modern integrated energy company. That's very helpful. Uh, and I anticipate, I wonder if you do, that others of the major, major, super majors of the oil and gas sector are going to follow suit, or maybe that's already happening, I don't know. 
I think around the world, you see not just in in uh, oil and gas, and I think in oil and gas, there are many um, uh, other major companies also um, changing their strategies, and everyone will have their own nuance, and that's quite mm-hmm. right. In a competitive in a competitive economy, you don't want everybody behaving in the same way. You want that competition. But I think just in general, the amount of companies which are recognizing the need to shift their business models is, is very significant. I think um, in the last numbers I saw, the number of companies around the world that have committed to a net zero target has increased from something like 500 companies in, in last year to over 1,500 companies this year. And so an enormous, and so that's not just in, in, in energy, but I think that's an important point here. This isn't just in energy. This is all of us have to change the way we behave, the way we use energy, the type of energy we consume, the efficiency with which we consume it. Um, and, and, and we are seeing that momentum. That's sort of part of that story why I'm, I'm sort of optimistic that when we look back in time, we may look at this point, this period we're living through now as a point of, inf- of inflection, which actually led to a, a significant acceleration in the energy transition. So I'm glad to hear you say that, Spencer, because it's a point I find myself regularly having to make in discussions and debates that it's insufficient only to look at the supply side for the necessary evolution. We have to look at the demand side. It's the intersection of those two, those two that determines what are the sources of energy, what are the emissions, and everything else. If I may just tell you a little anecdote, um, Robert. I, um, about a year ago, I was, or 18 months ago, I was uh, doing a talk uh, in a in a hotel in, in Washington and I'd finished talking and uh, somebody stood up from the environmental community and said and what are you BP what are you BP going to do about this and what was striking it was it was in the summer and it was a Washington summer's day so you know how hot mm-hmm. it was right. but we was all sitting in this hotel in this hotel ballroom with our shirts jackets and ties on with the air conditioning turned right up Mm-hmm. And, and nobody saw any irony in the fact that we were sitting right. there talking about how to use energy efficiently, sitting in a room with the air conditioning turned right up. If somebody had lit a cigarette at that point, they would have been seen as a you know, social prior. But the right. fact that we could all sit there and essentially just be wasting energy by having jackets and ties and shirts on where we could just take off our, our, our ties and jackets and turn the air conditioning down a little bit it was lost on people. And, and it was, what are you going to do about it? And I think it's flipping this this mindset around and saying, what are we all going to do about this to try and to, to achieve the, the transition we need? So with that, let's naturally turn to thinking about this green transition. In particular, I recognize it's not you know, part of your job description to follow closely climate policy developments in Brussels, but the European Union has put forward this green deal. Uh, do you have a view on that? I think it's, it's enormously uh, ambitious and enormously in, in, encouraging. And it's one of those, it's a, it's a classic example of, of what I was talking about earlier, Rob, in terms of the government intervention, which is being brought about because of the pandemic in order to get the economies up and running again. It's been focused on trying to ensure that in doing so, it, it, it equips the economy to grow in a more in a sort of more sustainable uh, greener way going forward and and the um, 
And I think many of us would look back in history and say what Germany did in terms of acting as a leader for the adoption of uh, wind and solar power had huge benefits for the rest of the world because it allowed that mass um, uh, mass adoption in, in one country, which allowed those costs to come down, which benefited many others. And I and it's quite conceivable that the EU could play that role in, in, in several other dimensions as part of the Green Deal, including in particular, I think, trying to with very ambitious plans for developing a hydrogen economy. So I think what is mm -hmm. happening in the EU, I, I think, is, is, is enormously encouraging for the EU but potentially has um, significant uh, uh, benefits for, for, the, for, the, for the wider global economy. And you've probably seen, in fact, perhaps you participated in the study that came out not very long ago from the University of Oxford. Uh, Cameron Hepburn, in fact, was with us previously to talk about that in terms of a, a green economic stimulus, not specifically the Green Deal, but a, a generic green economic stimulus for the United Kingdom and for Europe more broadly. Yes, I think there's a sort of growing recognition that um, we can have um, stimulus packages which are both good for the environment, but also good in terms of creating jobs in the near term. And I think that's what we got to do. If you ask governments today, with levels of un unemployment or, or potential unemployment, uh, um, potentially going back to levels not seen for many decades, if you ask them to trade off near-term jobs versus long-term uh, climate issues, that's a hard challenge um, for, for governments to do. But, but I think the work that Cameron and others have, have done is shown there doesn't need to be a trade-off between those two. You can design smart policies, which, both, um, which are both good for the long run uh, uh, sustainability, but also generate jobs um, in the near term. So that's sure, surely the objective. Let me wrap up by asking you a much broader question. And, and, and that is, you know, something that's been striking, at least to me, over the last couple of years, particularly in the year 2019, before the pandemic, was this rise of youth movements of climate activism, both in Europe and in the United States. And, and I'm interested because those people are the future. Um, I'm just interested in your reaction to those climate, young climate activists. I, I think it's, it, I think it's a wonderful movement, and I think it's brought home the fact that a you see um, that passion and that commitment that many of those people bring. We had the 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 Friday afternoon or the Friday class strikes where people were were leaving their classrooms for a period to to, to demonstrate, um, and in some sense it brings it home because it's people of my generation and your generation, Rob, that are, are mm -hmm. making decisions now. But it's that future generation and their children who are going to bear the cost of it if we don't get it right. And I think right. that it just brings it home. And I, I certainly know um, my, I have two children, well, um, young adults now in their early 20s, and they are far more climate aware um, than I ever was in, 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 uh, at the same time in my, my life. And, and they are far more focused on these issues. And I think they look at us as if to say, look, you know, don't mess it up for us. And I think that's a sort of quite a powerful thing um, to, to, to bear in mind, I think. Yes, my, my children are also in their 20s, in my, in my case, in their high 20s. And, and I've observed the, the same phenomenon that at that age, I certainly didn't even think about this. And it's very important to them. And then I recognize that children who are today starting primary school, just out of kindergarten in the very first grade, 
are hearing about climate change, which is quite remarkable, whereas that surely was not the case, I assume, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, now, and in some sense, it's a worry because the reason why they're hearing about it is because we haven't made enough progress over the mm-hmm. next 10 or 15 years. So let's hope in 10 or 15 years' time um, that we're on such good progress, people can, um, it, it becomes less uh, such a p- sort of point of, of concern. And But you do hear people who have genuine climate anxiety and it's affecting the way they live their lives. And, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent on, on our generation to do the, what we can to make sure we leave the world in a better place for the for the next generation. Well, well, let's bring it to a close on that very positive note. Thank you very much, Spencer, for taking time to join us today. It was great to talk with you. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity, Rob. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So thanks again to our guest today, Spencer Dale, Group Chief Economist at BP. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversation on Policy and Practice, from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.